Super Talk Mississippi media production. State Treasurer David McRae is returning record amounts of money to Mississippians, whether it's through the College and Career Savings Program or the millions in unclaimed money awaiting your claim. Treasurer David McRae says get your application and claims today. Treasury.ms.gov. This is Rebecca Turner, and thank you for listening to the Good Things Podcast here on Super Talk Mississippi. Three. It's Mississippi's Radio Happy Hour. Well, I'm going to Mississippi, Mississippi, here I come. You're listening to Good Things with Rebecca Turner. Well, I'm going to Mississippi, Mississippi, here I come. Bringing you the good stories of Mississippi's people, places, and things to do. Now, now, here's Rebecca. Good afternoon, Super Talk Mississippi. You're tuned into your radio happy hour. That's the good things. I'm your host, Rebecca Turner. Now, don't forget, you can listen to good things. We are streaming live over at supertalk.fm. We're also streaming from the Super Talk Mississippi app, and you can always find us too on your local Super Talk Mississippi radio station. And you can watch good things. We are on your computer or your mobile device. Just head on over to Super Talk TV. You'll see I'm not alone in the studio today. And joining, joining us is Colonel Craig Zimbe. Did I get it right? Close. Uh, yeah, that's pretty cool. Pretty we'll close. Go with that. we'll that's go with why that. most people call me Z. It's, it's, <laughs> you know where I'm going yeah. with that, Z. Yeah. But that's okay. He's an aviator. He's an author. He's an advocate. And he currently is flying Gulfstream jets and works on behalf of pro-life and anti-trafficking ministries and so much more good he is up to. And his home base is Laurel, Mississippi. So welcome, Z. So glad to be here. And what a beautiful day. Huh? Oh, what is a beautiful day. I was just telling Will, who's with us today, because Rhino's taking a few vacation days, you are by far the first Good Things guest who ever flew themselves in for an interview. <laughs> so you check on that. You're the only one who checks that box. But it is a beautiful day for a flight. It is. And isn't the natural world beautiful? To me, whether I'm up in the up in the sky, on the water, in the woods, a day like today, when it's dry, it just it just really reminds you fall's coming. And, and it just makes it, it's everybody, everyone, everywhere I go, that's what people are talking about today is how nice the weather is. You can actually look up in the sky and see airplanes today. You know, some days when it's cloudy and overcast, you don't know what you guys are doing up there. But today's like one of those days if you go outside and you can see a little speck all the way up in the air and sort of flying around. Do you feel that way when you're looking down? Do we look like specks to you or is it just going so fast you can't see? Uh, you know, things actually, once the higher you go, the slower everything looks like it is down on the ground. Whereas when you're down really low, everything seems fast. So huh. speed is relative. So if you're doing 500 miles an hour and you're at 40,000 feet, it looks like the world's just slowly moving underneath you. You do that same speed in a fighter jet down at 100 feet, and it gives you the rush of your life. It's like the world is just whizzing by, and, and it's it's really exciting. So speed is totally relative. And that is something probably not many, I'm not going to say not none, other than you listening to good things, has experienced. So let's start there, because you have a wonderful career in the Navy, and then you switch to the Air Force, which is unique, but I think some sort of do that. What led you to the Navy? What, what where were you, Z, in your life where you felt that call into the military service? Because that is a, you know, we don't talk about it often, but it really is a call to service. Well, I was I was born and raised in Pensacola. And other than a couple years where my dad took the family to, to Africa to be missionaries, I grew up in Pensacola, which is the cradle of naval aviation. So most of my uh, friends' dads were Navy pilots or had been. My dad was a Navy flight surgeon. So I was kind of surrounded by the lore and the lure of naval aviation. And I just wanted, uh, from my earliest memories, I, I was in, sitting in the back of the class, 
using my pencil as a as a stick flying around in, in imaginary clouds and and that was what I always dreamed of doing and uh, and so uh, I, that was what I had to try to do and it's pretty hard to get in but I was just gonna say just because you had that dream which I was sharing you someone from you know I grew up with had the dream it was unfortunately it wasn't gonna be in the cards with the stars for them because of their eyesight mm-hmm. so when you finally you know checked all the boxes to sort of make your way to I guess flight school or to or to whatever the last sort of stage is I mean was it surreal that this is coming true like everything you had dreamt and worked for was finally you know taking flight pun intended it was um so I went to school and, and was learning how to fly. I went to Laterno University, and I thought, I'm either going to be a missionary bush pilot, I'm either going to go to the mission field or the battlefield. And I knew it was so hard to get in the Navy. I thought, if I apply and I get accepted, I'll know that's the Lord's will. I know that's what I'm supposed to do. So when I got that letter of acceptance, I knew, okay, this is going to be my life. And so uh, so I went that direction, and that's what, that's what brought me to Mississippi. So um, I started off going to flight school right in Pensacola. And then after that initial phase, if you get selected for fighter jets, then you go either to Meridian or Kingsville, Texas. So uh, I came up to Meridian to go to flight school to continue that. And, and as, soon as, as soon as I came here, I fell in love with East Mississippi. It just it felt like home. The people were so nice. And uh, even though I'd grown up kind of on the water and on the beach, uh, I, it was kind of the Redneck Riviera down there. We called it L.A., Lower <laughs> Alabama. So my friends had farms. So I spent a lot of time in the woods, uh, in the woods with my friends as well as on the on the Gulf. So when I came up here, I just fit right in. And it, I, I loved it and decided I wanted to, after my military service was over, I wanted to come back here and make this my home. So And you didn't make Meridian. Well, Meridian's half your home, but your other is in Laurel, Mississippi. So they're not far from each other, but they're not necessarily super close either in terms of where you would come back what drew you to Laurel well when I got out of the uh, when I retired from the Air Force I was in Meridian and uh, and I was looking around for pilot jobs that are close I I didn't want to have to go to Atlanta or Dallas to start my day of work and uh, so then I found out about the job I have now flying for Sanderson Farms now Wayne Sanderson down in Laurel and uh, they had the top of the line jets and really great guys and and uh, and most of the, and the flying was all in the U.S. So I didn't have to travel the world anymore, which I was kind of tired of that. So um, so I, I took this job and it's been wonderful, it really has. And I've gotten to I've, I've plugged right into Laurel and it's now my it's it's now my home away from home and and uh, and I've got my church there and all my my friends are there. But then you also spend your weekends and your fun holidays. You're still tied to Meridian as well. In the farm life, so well, you are a true yeah. Mississippian. You I've have rooted yourself here. Yes, ma'am. I'm, miss, I'm a Mississippian by choice. Some uh, you know, people, uh, yes, we're by yeah. sort of by force, and then some are by choice. <laughs> and I, you know, we definitely will call you one of our own now. So it's sort of like in your second phase of life. I mean, you had your military career, which was expansive, and you're fully decorated. But then in this, I guess you don't call it retirement because I don't feel like you've stopped, right? I mean, you're oh, still no. sort of uh, vested. So how did you make the shift from Navy to Air Force? Because oftentimes you don't hear of people, I guess, uh, jumping in terms of their military uh, service. But you say that's kind of common within Navy to Air Force? Yes, ma'am. So when I finished my initial Navy commitment um, and I had settled here and was happy here, um, the only way to stay in the Navy was to go back to sea, back to Norfolk or San Diego. And I I, I was I was wanting off that crazy train. So um, I joined the Air National Guard right in Meridian. It was right same town. I was able to keep my same, uh, same church same friends same home and and do that so that's 
uh, that's what drew me into the Air Force right there, and it ended up being wonderful. And um, I was glad because shortly after that 9-11 happened, matter of fact, the week I graduated from my training in the Air Force, 9-11 occurred. Mm. And had I not done that, I would not have been able to participate in that war. And I wanted, uh, I wanted to be in the fight. I wanted to be involved any way I could. Um, my family's very patriotic. As a matter of fact, both of my brother-in-laws called me the night of 9-11. They were both civilians. And uh, one brother-in-law was at Reform Theological Seminary in Jackson. He called me up and said, Craig, I'm going to the recruiter in the morning, and I'm going to go join the Army. And I'm going to go be an infantry officer, and I'm going to fight the guys that did this. And I said, no, you're not. You're going to stay home with my sister and those three kids. The fourth was on the way, and take care of them and, and be, a, be a preacher. And he said, no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to join the Army. And he did, and I was proud of him. Uh, I wanted to wring his neck, but I was proud of him. And uh, my other brother-in-law called me about an hour later, and he said, Craig, uh, I'm going to go see the recruiter in the morning. And I said, no, you're not. You're going to stay, take care of my sister. And they had three and a fourth on the way. And I said, um, and uh, but he wanted to serve also. He said he was a, he was in med school. He said I want to be the doctor for the guys who are getting injured in the battlefield. So um, I'm proud of both of those guys. They had distinguished service in, in the in the army, and uh, and that was so. Our whole family wanted to be involved in the war, and I was able to do that uh, right in the Air National Guard in Meridian. Which is when you think about when you think when you hear the words nine eleven, you instantly it's one of those dates you instantly go back to where you were when that time happened. So for me, I was a senior in high school, right? Mm. And so the idea of like going into service, you hear all these stories. We just we were almost old enough, but not quite to really make that kind of huge transition. And then to hear of other people in that sort of phase of life where that was a real choice that they made to leave their careers or their families behind and to make that shift. When, you know, you have family or you had friends at that time that then that may push them into what they were already wanting to do, which was to go into the military. Um, right. But it's it's just, you know, that that's one of those pinnacle sort of uh, moments within our, our country's history where you go right back to hmm. we all, you know, go back to what that feels like. And, and it looks different sort of for everybody. And what happened next kind of looks different for everybody. It but does. yeah. And what happened next for you, too, is that you found this sort of life after which I guess you're still within the Air National or Air Air Guard. But author advocate all these other things sort of fell into place once you got space from your military service did it just fall into place or did you kind of have a call or a pull to put things into into words as an author well um i i had i had always written uh, ever since i was a young boy and i had a i had an old man kind of take me by the elbow the way they do and shake it before i was he was an old naval aviator and he said boy the next 10 years, if you take a journal and write down all the stories of crazy things that happened, you will be glad you did. You and will be glad you did, and we're glad you did. did. And we've got that book, 37 Near-Death Experiences, coming up with Z next. Making your afternoon just a little brighter. 
It's Good Things with Rebecca Turner on Super Talk Mississippi. I'm going to need me some Top Gun music uh, for our pilot we got in here. But welcome back to Good Things. Don't forget, you can find us on your computer or your mobile device. Just head on over to Super Talk TV. You will see i got a wonderful guest in the studio with me. i got Colonel Craig Zamba. He is a distinguished career, or has had a dis- distinguished career in the Navy and then the Air Force. But he's also an author. And so that's kind of like your second phase of life, right? Author and advocate. Would you yes, say ma'am. that? Yeah, but you've been writing for a long time. So you, you mentioned different sort of ways that you wrote. But you were sharing about a journal if you kept a journal that you could turn that into a book is that how 37 near-death experiences started was just your own reflections yes ma'am i would uh, i would come back from a flight where i almost almost died or or saw something <laughs> that's really not crazy funny but it's just so un, like we don't that's not my day at the end of the day that's not you know where uh what i feel like today. and i'll say just in case anyone from my current company is listening to this all these happened before i started flying <laughs> at my present employer so so these were all most of these happened in my 20s and and uh, the first 10 years you're flying, you're just flat out dangerous. And then you put that guy in a fighter jet. He's, you know, and he's and he's bulletproof because he's 25. Uh, he's already and Then you make him an adrenaline junkie. And then on top of that, he's flying off an aircraft carrier. And before you know it, um, the guy's just experiencing. And, and, and th- this was not unusual. I've had people say, really, you had 37 near-death experiences? And I kind of go like, well. That's just the 37 that fit in the book. Yeah, I probably had over 100 that are similar. Um, I kind of gave representative samples of because, you know, some in dogfighting, this happens regularly. I'll have one chapter on something that happened. And... Uh, and and so it's almost funny that I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing to tell you know while I'm still a career pilot to tell people how many near death experiences I've had but hopefully but you I've survived learned from them right yes, yes. yes well you obviously couldn't have put yourself in every one of them like some of it if it's in war settings I mean not I mean I haven't read every thirty seven near death experience in your book but I mean are they all poor choices by you no a lot of them were not <laughs> like, my fault right? like, <laughs> on the exactly so uh, you know but a, a buddy of mine told me one time uh, he said. You know, experience comes from, or, or he said this, judgment comes from experience. And experience comes from bad judgment. And pretty much your first your first 1,000 or 1,500 hours of flying, you, there's a lot of bad judgment going on, and uh, you don't have a lot of experience. And so um, if you survive that, um, you'll, you know, it's not the years, it's the miles, by the way. I'm, I'm actually a whole lot younger than I look. So, so um, anyway, um, but if you survive it, then, uh, then it, really does, uh, it really does benefit you. But the reason I wrote these stories um, is because uh, whether they're entertaining whether you're a pilot or not, but if you're a young pilot, hopefully, uh, I have a nephew that's going through flight training right now, hopefully he can read from these and, and smile and learn a little something, and maybe he won't fly through that thunderstorm that's shaped like an anvil and find out what happens you know so 
So a little bit of just fearlessness I think you have to have to be a fighter pilot, right? Like it's kind of just built into your DNA just because me, I would never get in the cockpit because I would go ahead and have all the reasons I'm going to die right there in in the front. You kind of have to like override that. Is Or is there a level of every time you step in, there's a little healthy fear that you kind of have to, you know, have tension with every time you you get in the pi- um, get in the co- uh, pit, but maybe not now because it's a little bit less well, scary. I, I but still, I think there's stages in your development, and I think it begins with um, for a guy to want to be a fighter pilot, he's got to have a little. We called it nafod, a little nafod inside. That means no apparent fear of death. So even if he know, even if he loses buddies in training or he sees planes crash or whatever, it's not going to happen to him. And he's ready to go up, and man out, and you know, man up and and suit up and get in that airplane and go because it'll never happen to him. He just he just feels and bulletproof. And then that's your initial phase, and you almost have to do that in order to do some of the crazy things to be catapulted off a ship, especially at night. Um, you've got to have no fear of death. But what happens is after you do that a few hundred times, you start to realize, man, this is getting real, and something bad could happen. And after because you're playing with fate at some point, right? I and mean, you, statistics are real. And so you actually be you you kind of becoming a little bit of a self limiting governor on what you're willing to do or not do and then you actually you actually start to become a little more aware of where you might die and a little more cautious and and then and then also initially in your career I'd say mine was I was just I was a young man looking for adventure and and I was an adrenaline junkie and I wanted to get you know I, I wanted to experience all the awesome stuff you could do in a jet well, that's kind of a really selfish, uh, immature stage in your career, but it's al- almost everybody goes through it. And once you go through that stage, then you start thinking, hey, this isn't about me. This is about I'm employing this jet. I'm, I'm projecting American superpower all around the world. And this is a cataclysmic struggle between good and evil, between the Islamic jihadists and and the ones that want peace. So then you, you kind of, it's no longer about you anymore and your airplane and, and do I look cool coming into the, you know, if I, doing a flyby at 600 miles an hour. It becomes more about how can I use this airplane to save American lives and to make sure that and to make sure that the enemy uh, the enemy are vanquished, and then later in life, then you're leading more men, and and now you're starting to be really concerned about your young men that have no apparent fear of death. So you're kind of putting your, sh- your arm around their shoulders and you're mentoring them, and uh, so it's it's kind of interesting how you go through the stages. Uh, but I think every warrior probably goes through that. He begins just looking for adventure and is excited. He wants to serve his country, but he just really wants to do something cool. And then after a while, you realize. This is that's maturity. Yeah, you should you bigger. should go through that from your twenties, you know, sure, into each sure. sort of decade. But see, what was the first time you got back to the ship or on the ground, and you you know got out of the cockpit, and then you went, oh, I need a beer. That was a close one. Uh, well, you know, as a Baptist, I, my mom might. Oh, okay. Um, well, a, yeah, um, yeah, a soda. I need a root beer. I need a root beer. So um, <laughs> I think if you almost died for your country, you can host a beer. Jesus will be okay. The funny thing about life on the ship, it's a dry county. I don't know. You know, so uh, when you land on the boat, there is no beer on the boat. That is another reason I'll never be a part of it. So so what we would do is when when you'd have a particularly scary night and you'd get aboard the ship, and uh, I would land some nights – one night I was the last guy out. I was the last recovery tanker for the night. I had a little – a little buddy store on my airplane that had a hose and a basket so if if one of my buddies couldn't get aboard the ship I could swoop down in front of him and give him some of my gas and then after everybody landed I'm the last guy out and nobody's out there to save me um and the 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 ship was 
pitching and heaving up and down and and uh, it took me a couple tries to get aboard and i oh man by the time i landed my knees were just shaking i was like i was like belshazzar uh, my knees were shaking and but i had this huge grin plastered on my face and uh and instead of going for a beer we would all get together at the front uh at the pilots uh at the fighter pilots wardroom and we would have a meal at about midnight or 1 a.m and we would eat something called the barney clark the barney clark instead of a beer barney clark was the first artificial heart recipient so the hamburger named in his honor was a double cheeseburger with two fried eggs and it came with a whole plate of french fries with brown gravy on it and we figured if you could survive a night trap yes you could survive a barney clark absolutely we would. That's how. That's how we would try to calm down after. Uh, that needs to be on a menu somewhere. <laughs> what a wonderful menu name. But I mean, but yeah, you'd have to. I mean, it's just sort of to shake the, you know, rattle the nerves. But then you do. You wake up the next morning. I guess you just go out. Do these happen like? I mean, back to back, or is it kind of like everything's going good for a couple of flights, and then you have like a little scary moment? Or I mean, I mean, I guess it's also fate. So you just really know, never know when when it's going to happen. It is, and I've written about you know flying through. I flew through a, a thunderstorm one time and hit a hailstorm and lost seven thousand feet in fifteen seconds and had all the paint ripped off my airplane and my windshield, my bulletproof windshield. Was Uncle cobwebbed. Sam happy with you when you got back? Not so much. <laughs> Those um, paint jobs are expensive. Yeah. So uh, I mean, I had things that happened where you. You just go, man, and and uh, so you kind of you're trying to be a little careful for the next flight or two, but but uh, you can't you can't be cautious. Have you ever had to eject kind. out of them? No, I came awfully close many many times. I had times where my right seater in an A6 would be he would have his hand on the handle, and I'd say wait wait wait, and we'd be able to pull out right before we had to eject. But I had a numerous uh, numerous close calls like that, but uh, fortunately never jumped out of a perf- perfectly good airplane. Although you told me today today's Airborne Day, so it is National Airborne yeah, Day. Yeah, congrats like to all the people who do jump out of airplanes. 1940, they had the yeah. first parachutes there at Fort Benning. I think I'm saying it right. Who was the first? Guy to volunteer for that, you know? <laughs> know man. Like, Jim's crazy. Let him go do it. You know, and we actually we actually flew C-27s in my squadron in Meridian for a little bit, and we had all the airborne guys jumping out of the back of our C-27s, and that was kind of fun to watch guys, especially if they it was one of their first jumps. They'd all be back there chanting and whooping and hollering and getting ready to go, and because when it's time to go, they got to go, and if the guy at the front of the line freezes up. That'd be me. The big sergeant's gonna and grab them and push. chuck them out I the window. I would have to go. Yeah. Like I would have to go first because if I'm the last one on the plane, I ain't jumping. Like there's nobody. You know there what my favorite Van Halen song is? Jump, out. go. <laughs> <laughs> there would be nobody there to push me out. I would have to go. I would definitely have to go first. And if you enjoy those stories, you've got to get the book "37 Near Death Experiences." But from author to advocate, we've got more with Z coming up next. that make you smile. This is Good Things with Rebecca Turner on Super Talk Mississippi, the Super Talk app 
and at supertalk.fm. You can watch good things with your own computer, your mobile device. You can watch it on Roku, Amazon Fire TV devices. You can even find us on YouTube. And if you've got Ceasefire TV, we are on Channel 70, right next to the Weather Channel, which says it's nice today in Mississippi. But hang on, because the triple digits are, are headed back. But that's okay. We're continuing our conversation today with Colonel Craig Ziemba. He is a distinguished Navy man, Air Force, and aviator. But he's also an author, and he's also an advocate. And he has spent much of his life on behalf of pro-life and anti-trafficking ministries. And I think that's a really cool and good thing. So, Z, how did you find yourself in the sort of mindset of even ministries or missions? Was that something you were brought up and raised, or did that come later in life? I was brought up uh, in a patriotic, God-fearing Christian home. And so dad uh, started a pro-life ministry as a, as a physician in Pensacola, and mom kept foster babies, and then which met, brought the, my sisters and I into this whole ministry as keeping foster babies. So um, I, was, uh, I was immersed in this my whole life, and I've always loved children, loved babies, and uh, wanted to do everything I could to make sure that, uh, that each one had the right to life. Um, and uh, so as a young man, as a 30-year-old uh, instructor in Meridian, I was flying A-4 Skyhawks uh, at the time, and uh, I started praying. I noticed we didn't have a pro-life ministry in Meridian, and I started praying and asking the Lord, please, send somebody here that will do this. And I was shaving one morning and looking in the mirror, and I think the Lord said, there's your, <laughs> there's your, there's your huckleberry. So, uh, so I began uh, – uh, I gathered a group of folks together. This is 1990. And uh, we started the CPC of Meridian, and it's been going ever since. And uh, I'll, I'll tell you the one of the best days I ever had was I had told Karen Sims, our director, she's now down in Hattiesburg directing the Hope Clinic. I told her, I said, well, look, I just want to make sure the first time a woman decides to choose life, you call me right away. And uh, I'll never forget, we'd been doing this for a couple weeks, and she called me up and said that the first girl decided to choose life. And hundreds more have made that same choice. And I know a lot of these kids now in Meridian, uh, occasionally I've had people come up and introduce me to their daughter or niece, a teenage girl who's alive today because of the CPC of Meridian. Um, so uh, I'm also involved in anti-trafficking ministries. And how I get how I got involved in that in this uh, this book Talitha Arise, um, I had all these stories from a a life involved in a variety of things and things I saw from the air and in the military, and I wove all those stories together into this pro life anti trafficking novel. Uh, I got I got. Uh, I became aware of trafficking and how wicked it was and how bad it was when I was a – I just got back from Afghanistan and I was flying special operations missions hunting terrorists and they took my squadron and sent us down to the Rio Grande and they wanted us to hunt cartel leadership. So we were doing that down on the uh, Rio Grande and I saw young girls, teenage girls who had been kidnapped and were being trafficked and sold across the river to be sold for just you know horrible horrible purposes. Uh, when I found out that was happening in America, slavery, today, it just made my blood boil. And I decided I wanted to do whatever I could to help. Um, and uh, the first character in the story of Talitha Arise is 
that girl that was rescued that first night we were there where we rescued some girls and I talked to the FBI agent the next day and he told me her story. Um, so I, I basically fictionalized a little bit enough to to uh, to change the names and uh, and I've linked these two evils and here's why. So our founding document, the Declaration of Independence, says we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. They're endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so the ideal that made America the greatest nation that there ever was, and the ideal that will bring us back to that state if we will follow it, is we have to believe that human beings have worth, have value in the sight of God. We're created by God, and our rights don't come from the ballot box or the Constitution. They come from God. And the only legit purpose of government is to protect God-given rights. And so as, as my career in the military wound down, I was looking for more ways to continue to serve my country that I loved and serve the Lord. And so I ended up doing that in the pro-life movement, and then I wrote an anti-trafficking ministry. Uh, uh, book, and uh, and I also decided I would get involved in anti-trafficking ministries. So I met some guys. Uh, if you know, if you saw the Sound of Freedom, I met a group of guys who uh, were rescuing trafficked women, and I said I wanted to help. So I hosted a group of them here in Mississippi at some location, and I went out in the field with them, and we were going to you know take down the bad guys and rescue. And, and I thought I could do it, and I tell you, it it disturbed me on such a visceral, deep level. I couldn't sleep for a couple nights after I just, – just to know what evil was happening in Mississippi disturbed me. And I, I told these guys, I, I want to shoot these perps when I see them. I, I don't want to minister to them. I want to shoot right. them. How, what can I do? And they said, you need to be involved in a different way. And I said, <laughs> I agree. Hey, what can I do? And they said, well, we need homes after these women are rescued. They don't have anywhere to go. And we need homes yeah. where women who are rescued from trafficking can live. So um, I met a couple, Kim and Jeff Gwinnett and Laurel, some, they're now dear friends of mine. They had the same burden on their heart. And we got together and we started a ministry called Missing Peace. And um, in Missing Peace, we, we take uh, women who are rescued by these rescue ministries and they bring them to us and we give them a safe place where they can be, where they can be loved and nourished and, and cared for by women. Uh, who love them and and disciple them and then give them a fresh start. So that uh, we started that about three years ago, and uh, women are living in our facility right now and coming to know Jesus and coming to know the uh, peace that He. Can Is there get. a way that those listening to good things that are moved by that Z can help with that? Because I think with the human trafficking and even the pro life, sometimes it can feel so overwhelming mm-hmm. that you don't know what to do with your hands, right? Like I mean, for the most of us, we wouldn't even have the skills to be able to go out in the dark and get the of bad guys, not. you know. Of yeah. Um, but then, and you recognize that once they are rescued, if that if they are uh, lucky enough to to be the few that do get um, found, that man, that's a long road to you know to it back is. to feeling safe and feeling back and in, in, into normal society, whatever normal is. And so you don't know what to do, so you don't do nothing. And so that's not good. So we got to do something. So what can we do? Well, uh, missingpeaceministry.org and peace is p e a c e missingpeaceministry.org. You can go there, and there's all different kinds of ways to be involved and to and to uh, and to contribute and I would welcome people to do that but you know ultimately you're right there's so much evil in the world that we can't and and what happens sometimes is we feel so overwhelmed by it I'm like I can't fix all this true but I can help one little person right here I can help one little baby I can go to Hope Clinic in Hattiesburg or Choices Clinic in in Laurel or the CPC of Meridian I can help save one 
I can help one. And and uh, I think that's what the Lord's called us to do. And if he gives us a bigger platform, awesome. If not, we'll be faithful in what we'll be faithful in a little and see what he does with it. But the reason I link these two ministries together so much is let me make this argument real quick. When people say, well, I don't know if I don't know if, you know, prostitution should be legal or I don't know if uh, I don't know if a, a, a woman should always have a right to terminate her pregnancy. I think of this. I think at the founding, and I, I gave you some of the Declaration of Independence there to start. At the founding, we had the ideal that all men were created by God on purpose and have value. So if I were to ask any American, if you poll a thousand people, was slavery evil? They will say yes. yes. So you, there's something we can all agree on. Slavery was evil. We, everyone agrees on that. Well, why was it evil? People say, well, because racism. Well, not really, because blacks no, held blacks and white held whites. And so what made it evil? I'll, I'll give you my definition of what made it evil. It's destroying one life for the benefit, profit, convenience, or pleasure of another. So to me, and isn't that what's wrong with slavery? I think a thousand people out of a thousand would agree with that. So when you destroy one life for the benefit, profit, convenience, or pleasure of another, you have committed a grave evil. And we have not lived up to our ideal as Americans. And so, to me, that's why I link the two together. And once I think people see that, then they'll see that prostitution is destroying a woman made in the image of God for the profit or convenience. It's horrible. And same with same with abortion. So that's why um, I think when – and the other thing is I don't want to be anti-abortion. I want to be pro-life. I don't want to argue with somebody about when conception is or when life begins. I want to show them a beautiful baby and say, isn't that beautiful? Focus on the positive. Yeah. Show them the beautiful outcome. Because yeah. the Bible says, be not overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. And I think that when we overcome evil with good, so when I can show somebody the beauty of how God made it, because we're not just a shell of carbon and chemicals on some accidental journey to nowhere. We were created with value and worth. And that's why I think, and, and that's what I, I tried to portray that in, in Talitha Arise and, and uh, also in, in 37 when I give my testimony at the end. Because to me, it's really important that we don't just be anti <laughs> all the bad stuff, but that, but, that, but that we, instead of just fighting darkness, that we promote the light. We promote the light. We're going to promote a little bit more. We'll promote how to get the books coming up next. Rebecca Turner. She's smart and pretty. Good Things with Rebecca Turner continues on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back to Good 
things. Don't forget we are streaming live over at supertalk.fm. You can also find us on your local Supertalk Mississippi radio station. And we are streaming over at Supertalk TV. We are rounding out the day here with our guest, Colonel Craig Ziemba. He is a aviator. He's an author. He's also an advocate. And he's obviously on the mission for, I think, the best call of your life, which is to serve Jesus and, and the mission of that. And in your book, 37 Near-Death Experiences, which is the first one we talked about, see, you've got chapter 38, and you kind of go into detail of your own testimony. Why was it so important for you to share that um, in your book? Well, I tell all these crazy stories so that I can so that I can bring it to the end so I can tell you the real crazy stories. Is after narrowly escaping death so many times in fighter jets and in combat in Afghanistan and Iraq and Bosnia, um, I faced the I faced the ultimate challenge, the one that almost took me out. Um, was when my uh, when my family fell apart, and I faced depression, and um, suicide had become a an epidemic in the military, and uh, and even though I was the commander, I was the colonel, I had to make my guys go to these suicide prevention classes and all this stuff. I was the guy who needed it the most, but I put on my flight suit every day, went to work, nobody knew it. I held, I, I kept that as a, as a secret, and uh, as my as my personal life uh, crumbled and everything I I cared about just vanished, um, I decided I was going to take my life, and uh, and I spent about a year struggling with that, and the Lord miraculously delivered me from that. And uh, what happened, uh, I'll tell you, and, I, and is my testimony, is when I lost everything that I thought mattered most, I found the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ was still there. And when everything else vanished, Jesus Christ was there for me. And he brought me out of the miry clay, and he set my feet on a rock, and he put a new song in my heart. And I'm going to spend the rest of my life praising him and telling people that if you're ever at rock bottom and you think there's nowhere to turn, there is. It's Jesus Christ, and He will be there for you. And He was there for me, and I and I'm going to spend the rest of my life telling people that. And I'm so glad I'm alive. I'm so glad I didn't throw away the chance that I have at uh, to experience a day like today. I love in chapter 38, Z, you talk about that there was a um, an ongoing sort of um, a script in your head that your family would be better without you, that you were sort of the problem, and it's a lie that gets sown. And I feel like it's maybe not that exact one on those who struggle at rock bottom with depression, but if you get to that point, then there is a lie that you're believing. And yeah. so and the first step is to recognize that that's, that, is, that is a lie and that you would be missed and you need to be here and you still have a, a purpose and you know and all of those things so for someone that's listening z that maybe is sitting there and you just really struck a nerve or thinking about that but man you don't know x y and z you don't mm. know my story you know yeah. that's you got all these great things now but you didn't have them then so like what's the hope you give to them if they're struggling today well um i th- i think that the the Deception of suicide is that is it almost feels like um, if I kill myself, I, the problem will go away. And I think all you're going to do is transfer your pain to someone else. And and the other thing is that the Bible says that Satan comes to steal and kill and destroy. But Jesus said, I am come that you might have life and have it to the full. And so if your life is bound up in your perfect family, your perfect career, your perfect image, then when those things crumble – you'll feel like it doesn't have any worth. And the fact is my worth doesn't come from – my self-esteem doesn't come from myself. It doesn't come from my career or any accomplishment. It comes from the love of Jesus Christ. And when you have that, that's the ultimate good thing in life. 
and then life is worth living. Absolutely, and everything else sort of falls into place and into purpose. I like, too, how you said it's the bogey you never see coming. Um, yeah. and, but I think we all have that, right? I think sure. if you live long enough, if you walk this uh, earth long enough, then there's going to be bogeys left and right to come. And you just have to know where, where your true north is and sort of right. have that sort of anchor. And if you have that, you can weather those storms a little bit. Yeah, because life better. is going to be a series of triumphs and, and tragedies, right? I mean, mm-hmm. we, we think, I, I fell for the lie that, hey, if you do right, if you, you, know, if you go to church and you and, and you and you don't cuss and you do these things your life will be wonderful and god will bless you and everything will go right in your life well guess what Wrong. <laughs> and so when that doesn't happen it's very unsettling and the, and so the point is life's a series of ups and downs the one thing that stays the same is the love of god and if you have that, you can weather the storm. You can weather the storms. And if you want your books, where, Z, where do you get them? You can get ebooks on Amazon, uh, or you can get hard copies at the laurelmercantile.com website. So Ben and Aaron's website, they, you can get my hard copies there. Uh, you can also get hard copies at Be Amazing Paper in Laurel. And uh, right downtown, Historic Laurel, Be Amazing Paper, or at the Scotsman General Store. So all the, you know, the, the place all the tourists come. And you're still writing. You're writing a little blog there for the Laurel Mercantile. I am. Well. Yes, ma'am. All right. I feel like this is the first as many. Is that okay, Z? Sure. All right. Well, you guys stick with us. we got more coming up for you next. you got the sports talk from 3 to 6. But we'll be back with you tomorrow at 2. But until then, I hope you all find time for the good things. Don't pass me over. No, no, no. Me by, see, I can see good things for you tonight. Yeah, good things for you tonight. Yeah, good things for you tonight. Yeah, good things for you. Super Talk Mississippi Media Production.